parasite, an organism that lives on a different species, known as the host, from which it gets some or all of its nourishment. Parasites are harmful to their host, although the damage they do ranges widely from minor inconvenience to fatality. They do not usually cause disease themselves, although they are frequently a vector of disease. The stark and terrifying truth is that the earth is just one big farm, and for these entities, we are the cattle. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! Tonight we are reviewing the book Paranormal Parasites, The Voracious Appetites of Soul-Sucking Supernatural Entities by Nick Redfern. You may remember Nick from our episode on the Slenderman in Season 1. He has written a ton of books on various topics, ranging from UFOs to Bigfoot to cryptids. He has appeared on more than 70 television shows, including Proof Positive, Ancient Aliens, and even... Countdown with Keith Olbermann. This title was released in 2018 through Llewellyn Publications and is a collection of research and observations that Nick has made throughout years of his research. Oftentimes, the more obscure aspects of UFO or cryptid reports are ignored by researchers. But this book delves into a specific aspect of supernatural encounters. Feeding. Specifically, feeding upon us. Let's begin with a paranormal parasite that we're all familiar with, the vampire. Bram Stoker's novel is the most widely known tale of this creature, but it is not the first one published. Eighty years prior, author John William Polidori wrote The Vampire, and that's vampire with a Y, not an I. This piece was misattributed to Lord Byron for quite some time. You see, Polidori was Byron's longtime friend and physician. It was originally released in 1819 in the publication The New Monthly Magazine. I suppose, being an early serial periodical, the name Monthly Magazine wasn't as redundant as it seems to us today. In The Vampire, we are introduced to Lord Ruthven, who is exactly what you would expect. Anyone who crosses his path meets tragedy and, ultimately, death, usually through blood loss. As was common in writing at the time, the Lord was the main feature of a multitude of other authors' stories, despite being a creation of Polidori. In the 1800s, imitation was basically literary piracy, meaning your original characters were essentially up for grabs. In 1847, the world was introduced to Varney the Vampire, a.k.a. The Feast of Blood, written by Thomas Peckett Prest and James Malcolm Reimer. I personally think they should have titled it after the character's full name, Sir Francis Varney, though I think I associate the name with humor because of Jim Varney, but that is neither here nor there. Know what I mean, Vern? In the 1870s, we met Carmelia, the first vampirist in literature, and one that overtly associates vampirism with homoeroticism. Carmelia is obsessed with Laura, the protagonist of the story. 
Without the success of these characters, we would not have had Bram Stoker's Dracula, which also means we would not have Twilight, so really, it's a double-edged sword. What about historical vampires, though? The term vampire isn't seen in English until the 1700s, but the concept of a blood-drinking monster goes back to ancient times. One of the oldest accounts is of Lilith, the biblical first wife of Adam. In Greece, there is the Lamia, who drinks the blood of and consumes children. In fact, Greece has several blood drinkers, so I wonder what that says about them psychologically. Anyway, one of the accounts that more closely relates to the modern concept of the vampire comes from Kringa, today known as Croatia. It involves a man named Yuri Grando, who lived in the region until his late 70s. After his death, Yuri took a bit of respite, sleeping that sleep of death for a decade and a half, at which point he rose from the grave looking for a bite to eat. Initially, he wasn't very aggressive. When he first awoke, he spent his nights being more of a creeper than anything else. Residents, including his widow, would catch him peering through their windows at night. As if that weren't creepy enough, he would sometimes knock on the door, waiting for someone to answer. It was said that once Yuri knocked, those inside would soon be visited by the Grim Reaper. Eventually, he was confronted by Father Giorgio, a local priest who stood before him with a crucifix. It was said that Yuri fled at speed when confronted by this reliquary. Father Giorgio, and a posse of townspeople, noticed that Yuri returned to his coffin to rest during daylight hours, so they hatched a plan to destroy him once and for all. Upon exhuming his body, they found Yuri asleep within, bearing a hideous grin. One brave man volunteered to decapitate the thirsty corpse. When the first cut was made, Yuri awoke, briefly screaming before his head was removed from his shoulders. While Yuri was never referred to as a vampire, he was called another name that is still used today. The Strigoi. To conclude our foray into vampirism, I will bring us back around to Bram Stoker. Highgate Cemetery is creepy at the best of times, but it is also host to its own vampire stories. In 1855, a woman named Elizabeth Seidel was interred there. In 1862, her family opened her grave, reportedly to retrieve some poetry that was buried with her. What they found was a perfectly normal-looking body. In fact, it seemed as if her bright red hair had been freshly washed and dried, the implication being that she was a vampire. Now, Bram Stoker would have known this story, making many literary scholars wonder if she was not the inspiration for the tragic character of Lucy Westerna, Mina Harker's best friend and early vampiric victim, in the book Dracula. What happens when blood just isn't enough to satiate the beast within? Another creature of modern mythology arises. The zombie. I'm not going to bore you with tales of the walking dead from popular cinema, though. No, this is the esoteric book club, so we're going to get weird. If you ever visit the Philippines and you hear tick, 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 you need to find shelter 
because it means the Aswang is on the prowl. This ghoul is deathly pale with large, bulging eyes. Its clothing hangs off in shredded rags, and it smells, obviously, of death. It's not just a bloodsucker, though. It's also cannibalistic, with a taste for a very specific delicacy. Newborn infants. As if that weren't bad enough, the Aswang is also a shapeshifter, able to turn into a black dog at will. So when that stray canine keeps following you, making odd ticking noises every time you look away, you may just want to find help. West Africa has an interesting ghoul-like entity known as the Kikieon, whose name translates into Soul Cannibal. Sounds like a band name or an odd survival horror video game. The Kikieon is a dwarf-like creature with bat wings and fiery red eyes. When the sun sets, it takes flight, looking for prey. It even replicates a similar way to vampires, by biting the neck of its victims. This bite quickly becomes infected, and the recipient will soon become ill. It is said that their face will become unemotional and blank while they slowly waste away. Eventually, their body will succumb to the rot inflicted by the Kikieon, only to arise from the dead with a brand new set of bat wings. Not all of these parasitic creatures have physical forms, though. There is a concept among a wide array of religions of the hungry ghost. The idea is essentially that those who go against the religion's primary tenets, such as karma, they will be cursed in the afterlife to seek out, but never attain, the target of their sin. The name of this phenomenon is a good example. A ghost who desires a gluttonous amount of food, and yet has such a tiny mouth that it cannot consume. So how do these ghosts satiate themselves if they cannot eat? Simple. Through possession. They generally target people who are already in a weakened state, whether it be lack of sleep, illness, mental strain, starvation, etc. The ghost will then use that person's body as a puppet, forcing them to act in accordance with the ghost's own sin. A starving man could gorge himself on food, yet never gain weight because the ghost is consuming all the nourishment that the food would provide. As such, the human host is placed under immense mental and physical strain. Remember the definition of a parasite from the beginning of the show? They may not cause a disease, but they can be a vector for disease. Eventually, the host will succumb to malnourishment or illness if a religious figure does not intervene. Up until now, the creatures mentioned are probably what you would expect, right? But this is Nick Redfern. He doesn't settle for the obvious. He looks at a broad spectrum of events to get a holistic view of this phenomena. Have you ever considered that entities involved in UFO sightings could also be parasitic? Unless you have lived most of your life without television, radio, or really any media of any sort, you've probably already heard of the phenomena of cattle mutilation. For my two listeners who are listed as coming from unknown location on my statistics page, cattle mutilation is when cows are mysteriously killed, drained of blood, and partially dissected. 
Oftentimes, organs will also be missing, their absence overshadowed only by the precision with which they were removed. These corpses are often found by ranchers after noticing they were missing a head of cattle. But what if I told you that cattle mutilations are only part of the story? Paul Benowitz, a scientist who worked near Kirtland Air Force Base in Dulce, Arizona, says that the government is covering up the fact that they lost possession of a secret installation deep within Archuleta Mesa. According to his story, the Mesa was controlled by the U.S. government and was used as a meeting place for humans and extraterrestrials until 1979. Benowitz was witnessing UFOs himself and was hearing reports from locals about abductions, first by aliens, and then by government officials who interrogated the abductees. More disturbing, there were rumors that some abductions were becoming disappearances instead. As Benowitz began to organize his reports, he developed the idea that there was open rebellion within the Mesa. The extraterrestrials had entered into armed conflict with the soldiers within and had taken control of portions of the facility. This base was going to be the launching point of an alien invasion which would render the planet into one big farm, one where the humans were livestock. That is why people were going missing from the local town. They weren't experiments. They were food. He was so convinced of this theory that he compiled a dossier that he entitled Project Beta and mailed it to the CIA, FBI, and the White House. The U.S. government couldn't pass up an opportunity to spread disinformation, so they created a liaison who would secretly meet with Benowitz and feed him stories that they wanted him to have. Obviously, Benowitz spread these stories, making the whole situation a quagmire of half-truths and bold-faced lies. How does this relate to paranormal parasites? Dulce is a large, strange place. The area around it fell under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, specifically under the auspices of Project Plowshare. Officially, this project was an attempt to detonate an atomic bomb beneath the surface in order to open up access to natural gas pockets. Think fracking, but on a nuclear scale. Although, when you phrase it like that, it sounds like a terrible idea. This all took place 4,000 feet below the surface on December 10th 1967. It was, and currently still is, illegal to dig anywhere within the area where this detonation took place. At least, that's the official story. There are some in the UFO community who see Project Plowshare as a cover for the government's final ditch effort to quell the alien uprising by detonating a nuclear device near their stronghold. This gained more footing when it was revealed that the FBI had a multitude of accounts of cattle mutilations in the area surrounding Dulce. While cattle mutilations are reported across the country, apparently there is a significantly higher quantity in this region. Further accounts by purported insiders who worked at the base prior to its conquest said that there was a vast facility where the greys, you know, the little guys with big heads and solid black eyes, were producing vats of high-protein liquids 
that they would sort of bathe in? In the processing area of these facilities, it was seen that the vats contained both human and bovine body parts within. It's probably not too dissimilar from what's in the McRib. High-protein day spas were not the only source of nourishment for the greys. Things get a bit theoretical here. Alan B. Walton, the author of the Dulce book, explains that living organisms have multiple auras, for lack of a better term. The first layer is called the etheric body. The second layer is the astral body. And the third layer is the mental body. What makes humans unique is that we have a fourth layer known as the emotional body. The energy created by this special layer of our aura is like crack to aliens. They can't generate it, nor can they reproduce it, so they have to harvest it directly from the source. So in all those abduction accounts where the greys stare deeply into a person's eyes, they may not be trying to hypnotize their victim. They may just be trying to get their next fix. And, since the emotional body is formed from energy, by having it consumed by ETs, it is no surprise that people would fall into a deep, hypnotic-like slumber. It would be like leaving the headlights on in your car, only to later be unable to start it. Extraterrestrial parasites don't just stop with the greys. The men in black are involved too. It is likely that a majority of men in black encounters are really just government officials. But there are plenty of reports where these figures act more than a little off-kilter. The first thing that witnesses usually notice is that they dress behind the current trends, usually by several decades. Even in the 80s and 90s, these individuals were dressing as if they were from the 50s or earlier. Their physical features usually seem a little off as well. In some examples, they may not blink. In others, they have no eyebrows. In another, their skin is so pale that veins were visible beneath. It's as if they are almost human, but not quite. The final giveaway is that they don't seem to understand the concept of food or drink. They understand that it's an aspect of humanity, and if they want to blend in, they need to use consumables as props. But beyond that, they seem stumped. In one incident, an MIB complains about having an upset stomach while he is interviewing a witness. The lady offers him a bowl of jello in response. When he accepts it, he just stares at it for several minutes, stares in confusion at the spoon he was handed, and then tries to drink the jello as if it were a liquid. After several failed attempts, he apologizes and makes a hasty retreat. In another account, a bartender recalls two individuals who entered the bar just before last call. The couple, a man and a woman, both order a beer and just sort of stare at the bartender while he finishes his closing procedures. After a few minutes, they simply turn and walk away, neither bothered to even take a sip of their beer. A few days later, the bartender came down with a severe bacterial infection on his legs and lower portions of his body. Remember one of the other aspects of a parasite? They do not usually cause disease themselves, although they are frequently a vector of disease. In fact, 
Witnesses who encounter these otherworldly men in black often report unusual health problems after the fact. Few are more pronounced than that reported by Albert Bender, who was plagued by men in black who appeared to be more demonic than extraterrestrial. They walked through walls, smelled of brimstone, weakened him with a hypnotic gaze, and all manner of weirdness. After prolonged encounters with these entities, Bender was suffering from weight loss, migraines, and shortness of breath. Other victims reported symptoms similar to a diabetic sugar crash, while others had symptoms often associated with anemia. It's a broad spectrum of symptoms, but it all comes down to a sense of exhaustion and weakness in the individual after an encounter with an anomalous men in black. While it is not spoken of in this book, it is speculated that these are aliens in people suits, or even hubrids, a term used for human-alien hybrids. If they were wholly or partially extraterrestrial in origin, it would explain why they seemingly have the abilities like the greys. Now I have this image of a grey alien, returning home after a long day of harassing UFO witnesses, removing its people suit, and relaxing in a hot tub full of red broth. Finally, there is a whole category of entities who, on the surface, just seem to be perverts. To fully appreciate this, we need to take a step back and learn about Wilhelm Reich. Yes, he sounds like an Indiana Jones villain, but he's more of a mad scientist. He was born in 1897 and fought in World War I. After he served, he went to the University of Vienna, where he earned a medical doctorate degree. In 1919, he met Sigmund Freud. Because of Reich's work on sex and sexuality, Freud offered him a deputy directorship in his Vienna clinic. Reich moved around for his work until 1939, when the rise of Adolf Hitler forced his move to the United States. In the U.S., he began to research a biological energy force that would eventually come to be known as orgone. By definition, orgone energy a term coined by Reich himself is best described as a life force energy that can be found everywhere, even on the surface of the earth. This energy, Reich believed, was capable of healing the sick, optimizing body function, and adjusting weather formation. How did Reich develop the concept of orgone energy? He had a device that could measure the amount of electricity in an object so obviously he aimed it at human genitals when they were stimulated. Somehow, I feel like this came about from some drunken debauchery when his fraternity brothers were messing around with the new machinery, but that's totally just speculation on my part. The point is, he noticed that there was a marked rise of electrical discharge when a person is in an aroused state, and it increases during orgasm. So, of course he named the energy Orgone, because why not? At least this part of his research had tangible evidence to support it. After this, his work starts to get more than a little weird. He created a machine whose purpose was to increase the amount of ambient Orgone energy around a person's body in order to help cure them of disease. To me, it sounds like he's built a machine that artificially increases sexual tension in the air around the person. The machine was essentially a box that the person would sit in. 
The inside of the box was coated with metal, and the outside was covered in an organic material, which is extremely vague, and I cringe a bit just thinking about what he may have used. Reich's theory was that the organic outside would attract orgone energy and would transmit it through the metal interior, where it would bounce around and bombard the person inside. He claimed that this could cure everything from cancer to mental illness. He also claimed it had a close affinity for water, and he expanded his creation to include weather manipulation. Needless to say, the government didn't look kindly upon his creations. The FDA began to crack down on Reich, and in 1954, they filed an injunction that limited his ability to sell his orgone accumulators outside of his home state. Not that that stopped him at all. Two years later, Reich sold an accumulator to an undercover operative who wanted it shipped across state lines. The government response was immediate and all-encompassing. Reich's books were pulled from publication and sale, gathered, and subsequently burned. His facilities were raided, and six tons of his machinery and materials was slated for destruction. So they took the easy way out and simply set everything on fire. He then received a two-year prison sentence where he later died from heart failure. Today, the New Age community has latched onto the concept of orgone and has applied it to everything from chakras to alien defense. There is even a group of people who make their own orgone devices from resin, crystals, and copper wire. They have wildly imaginative names like 12 Vortex Transformation Modifier and Crystal Resonator Frequency Zapper. One of my favorite manifestations of this is a website whose headline reads, The Alien and New World Order Agenda. We can defeat them with Ether Energy Orgone Blasters, trademark. These Orgone Blasters will keep chemtrails from sticking over your home and area, destroys aliens, and demons won't come near them, and they will kill zombies and evil beings. No, I'm not linking it in the show notes, but honestly, it shouldn't be too hard to locate on Google if you wanted to see for yourself. The reason I had this aside on Orgone is because that it is one option that Nick presents in Paranormal Parasites. There are a ton of stories about creatures, ghosts, and sometimes aliens showing up at Lover's Lane locations. Picture this. A passionate couple pulls off to the side of the road and parks their car for some alone time. When they are just getting to steam up the windows, they see a spotlight shining on their car from overhead. Or a fur-covered face staring intently through the windshield. Or even a goat man leaping onto the hood of the car, menacing them with a battle axe. Yes, that last one is a real thing known as the Pope Lick Monster. The point is that these entities may not be just curious. They may be feeding off some of the ambient orgone energy that is generated. I'm not entirely sure that I buy that explanation, but in specific cases, I think it's possible. Especially when you apply it to the incubi and succubi encounters, or even old hag syndrome, which is commonly attributed to sleep paralysis today. Nick presents the idea that these entities attack you in your sleep, when you are most defenseless, and then stimulates your subconscious to create this arousal effect. Then, as your dream progresses, they feed upon the orgone energy that is generated. 
The hungrier they are, the longer and more intensely they manipulate your dreams. This should give you a pretty good idea of what Paranormal Parasites is about. Nick doesn't pass judgment on theories, and he concisely relays the concepts that researchers are working with in the paranormal field. Some of the ideas are pretty far-fetched, and certainly fall into the realm of pseudoscience, but that's okay. Sometimes the paranormal needs unconventional ideas to help explain it, because the phenomena itself is unconventional. Otherwise, we would just call it normal, not paranormal. If you like what you heard and want to read more, I'll post a link to the book in the show notes. Esoteric Book Club is going to be at the Cryptid Bash in Morgantown, West Virginia on Saturday, August 7th. There will be a ton of artists, authors, and creators, as well as screenings from small-town monsters. Podcaster and co-author of the book Where the Footprints End, Timothy Renner, will also be there, as well as the cast of the Moth Boys podcast and Manic Pixie Dream Ghouls. It's free admission, so if you're in the area, don't miss out. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at Esoteric Book Club. I would love it if you would consider supporting me on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can join the ranks of Loyal Goblins, or in the case of Samantha Shaver, become one of the top-tier supporters and get a shout-out on every episode. These funds pay for reading material, server costs, and helps keep a steady level of coffee in my bloodstream. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. If you'd like to hear more, you can find them at bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. With things beginning to reopen, you may even be able to catch them live in the near future. That's all I have for tonight, so until next time, remember, stay weird. <laughs>